Anna, thanks so much for coming on Outside the System. I'm not going to say I'm happy to be here. We agreed. You're forced to be here. <laughs> we just take it for granted that you guys all know that I want to be here and that's why I'm here. Otherwise, it would be Nilsson's jury duty for <laughs> unwilling podcasts. That would be terrible. You've been drafted to be on the podcast. It's your turn. Yes, this is, I, I picked a number and my number was tonight. Uh, and so here I am. That's a good preview, actually, for how your, uh, your personality is on Twitter, which is where I first came across you many years ago. And you quickly became one of my favorite follower, follows, not followers, but follows, because uh, you are interesting, like in terms of your tweets are never boring, but you're also a nerd, which, <laughs> which I really appreciate. But you're not like tweeting like academically, right? You're tweeting always with like, you know, there's an audience, you're a performer, but you're like a nerdy performer. So that's why I thought you'd be a great guest. <laughs> I love Twitter. I don't know if I will continue to love it, given the current state of things. But um, definitely, I, I've been having a blast there. And it's also a really interesting playground of experimentation with tone, working in public, but also being able to, you know, just keep some stuff backstage until you feel ready to share it with the world. Um, finding the right level of legibility. Oh, I always think that people kind of, you know, emit a kind of dolphin's song that the other dolphins pick up on. And often you don't know what that is, right? So, you know, when you, Neil, you're tweeting something, there is a tone, there is a vibe, there is an ethos, an atmosphere around you that attracts likewise people. And, and I was, I think for me, Twitter has been a kind of my, one of my first experiments on being more conscious of the dolphin song and writing it consciously, not because I'm trying to manipulate people. I'm, I mean, I would not benefit from attractive, attracting people who are so unlike me and, and, you know, what they're looking for in terms of communication, but that I wanted to understand what that is. And you understand it through, you know, playing with the language a little bit. I think I am a nerd. I could probably speak <laughs> about language for three hours. But it's been a very interesting exper experiment. And I've also learned at this you know, scale how to create a safe environment for myself. I think for women, there is a kind of sweet spot of being in the public eye where you have enough publicity that you feel very safe because nobody can really troll you. I mean... If somebody really tries to troll a very public woman, this woman, because she's public, she has some kind of leverage for protecting herself and people would care, right? But you're not public enough that, you know, completely unrelated people would project whatever is on their minds on you, which I, I can see a lot of, you know, women with a bigger profile than myself struggling with. And they seem often quite powerless when it comes to dealing with that. Yeah, and I think you've built this space for yourself where you are, at least from uh, me as like an audience member, essentially, you seem pretty open and honest in that you're not just sharing, you know, a highlight reel. Like you're sharing your stream of consciousness. I don't even yeah, I don't have highlights now. But that's so shocking because, you know, I've been in multiple situations in my life. I have a lot of like offline friends that I made through uh, Twitter. I've been in love through Twitter. A lot of things have happened to me. I, I raised money through people. And that's one of the things I want to really dive into is like, uh, actually I even have, like you're, what you're doing now, Interintellect, is almost born through your Twitter community. I mean, I would say it is was born through your Twitter community in a lot of ways. It's a little bit more complicated. And I think for me, Twitter, rather than kind of a starter kit for an audience, acted more like a... Um, kind of an, an encouragement machine or a catalyst because Twitter was a very dangerous adventure. And I, I went there and I, I thought to myself, can I handle this? And when I saw that I could, I knew that I was ready to build a business, to interact with the public, to publish more publicly and, and to build a community. Beforehand, I had no first-hand knowledge. I built a nonprofit before, which was in the women's rights space. Again, you know, putting together very risky but very peaceful conversations. And that was in a different country, in a different, you know, in a different time. But Twitter gave me this enormous self-confidence, maybe overconfidence at the time that, you know, whatever is thrown at me, I will be able to, to handle it. And, and I have to say, like, of course, there are a lot of challenges around uh, interintellect. We're a pre-seed company. You know, we've just built 
a small team, all the ups and downs and startup roller coaster situations are happening. But community management has never been one of the challenges so far. We've done thousands of events at this point amongst complete strangers from the internet, often meeting for the first time. And we had one incident, which again was completely unrelated from our, like it was unrelated to us. It was about a host and the host's own following. And we handled it in one second. I could say that we had zero incidents in the past two and a half years. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, so maybe we start with you sharing a little bit more about interintellect and and the the goals, what what it does, you know, who joins, and yeah, just how it works. Because I've been a member, I've been to salons. We can maybe explain what a salon is too, because I think as a term, I think language is something you're very good at, and you chose that word on purpose. Salon seems it's not, hey, come join the Zoom meeting about topic X. It's join a salon. It it conveys something higher and better and, you know, something, I don't know, something you want to be a part of, right? So yeah, maybe just talk a little bit more about that. And I'll stop being just a testimonial of interintellect and and let you share some. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love the word salon. It means a small room in French. Salle is a big room, except when people think that they will get a haircut <laughs> at interintellect or their nails done. I mean, I've been obsessed with, with dialogue since I was five or six. I I wrote my first play when I was six. I tried to translate Shakespeare plays (laughs) when I was nine. I was was a very strange child. And I always thought, because my parents were in entertainment and creating television content, basically, I always thought that, you know, I would just write dialogue for fictional people, you know, characters. And I wrote screenplays. I wrote plays. I worked with screenwriters and directors on their stuff. And it was really only maybe mid-2010s when I felt that, you know, having worked on that stuff and a lot of NGO work as a journalist, so kind of like one foot in the arts, the other foot in social sciences and, and, and kind of social improvement, I felt that I didn't really have an excuse anymore not to get directly involved with the world, that this kind of meta existence uh, of just writing and working at startups and teaching at university were simply this was simply not sufficient for 2016. You know, I basically looked at my own CV. Wow, what can I do? I, I spent my whole life looking at all the things that, you know, all my sh- all the shortcomings that I had and all the reasons why I'm not good or smart or fit enough to be involved in a leadership role with the world. And I felt that in 2016, all that kind of stopped mattering. And this was the you know, year after the, the migrant crisis. This was the year of Brexit, the Clinton-Trump election you know, year. And I'm a political immigrant. I left Eastern Europe because of the same things. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to just sit on my bed and write novels while this is happening now in my chosen homes. And I just got busy. I went into, you know, dialogue science. So I started to research mediation and, and dialogue as a, from a scientific and, and kind of like neuroscientific point of view. That was the year of the AI chat boom when everybody was trying to build AI chatbots, which kind of makes sense right now, right? And so I thought, I thought that technology is the sector where you can create the most direct and widespread impact. And that I had to go into technology and build something there that will directly improve the public dialogue. And at first, I wanted to do it through one-on-one conversations. I was experimenting with building a chat app that could somehow soften blows that people were at the time having in, in, in like chat situations, which was kind of a, a moment, a, a, the thing of the moment. I think people have greatly learned how to use this tools now and it's much less prevalent but there was no there was no research i think i found like a couple of masters theses and maybe one phd like it was not there was nothing I and mean, i was just doing my my own research for one and a half years two years and and so gradually this idea morphed into what interinsect is today which is basically a rebuilding or a reimagining of the media space the public square through one conversation at a time but these are group conversations where people from all over the world, all walks of life, all different you know, time zones 
can come together and discuss something that is unrelated to matters of faith, politics, ethnicity, anything, any other way in which people might feel, you know, different or divided from one another. And we can just like put those aside. And the past two and a half years have been around experimenting with the choreography and the code of conduct and the format of these things. So it feels extremely natural. We almost never moderate and it just creates a space where people can be at their kindest, most curious and, and most patient. Interinteract's goal is to be the space where the best conversations on the internet happen. My insight here is that there have always been or there had always been good conversations on the internet, but it was rare, random and risky to find mm. them. Yeah, like random forums or something. Absolutely. Yeah, you could you could have stumbled upon good stuff on the inter- internet before. And so we built this curated marketplace for artists and intellectuals, public teachers, people with the ambition to, to learn and teach together uh, without end goal, without certificates, without any pressure. And everything you click on interintellect, on interintellect, will be good. You've never heard of this topic. You've never heard of this host. You've never met anybody who's in the room. And you will have a good experience. And we can just bring this in a continuous way, which is a huge achievement also for our hosts and our, our community kind of uphold our norms through their choices, through their behavior. Our, the, the community in Interinterlect um, are kind of our most passionate event goers who want to spend more time with us and they come to offline gatherings as well or organize them. And they also come and hang out in, in our forum. So I have a, a couple of questions which are like uh, related to how you've been able to do this repeatedly. Right. Because I think if you were to organize an event like this one time, you know, you curate the people in the room, you know, you set a time that works for everybody and you moderate and you might have one good event, but you've now done thousands of these. So, and you said you barely moderate if ever. So one, I guess, who are, who is hosting these discussions and is there some kind of standardization that you found across these? And then I guess a related question is in terms of the audience members, is it almost a self-selecting group of people who would join this type? Like, I, I feel like you've branded this in a way that it's not for just about everybody. It is, you know, you're welcoming to everybody, but not everybody would select themselves for this community. So I guess those are the things like, how have you been able to do this so many times now and create a consistent experience? Because I think it's events, especially they're live, you know, it's, there's no editing. There's no uh, ability to fix mistakes later. So yeah, it's it's incredibly impressive that you had thousands and you know seemingly really except for that one time which didn't have anything much to do with you all, there hasn't been widespread issues. So talk a little bit about that because I think that has a lot of applications to many other types of businesses even that just how have you built almost this recipe but still left room for creativity. All of these things are related. Right. Um, this is kind of a, a, an ecosystem where everything positive feeds into something else and creates more positive stuff. The dolphin song of the one type of person, one type of output, finding somebody else out on the internet who has a similar need, a similar output, definitely works with interintellect. One of the things that was kind of counterintuitive to me and then became an absolute truth in how the platform is built today is that one of the best ways of checking self-selection is making the events paid or at least paid in the sense that you know you have a membership and with your membership come tickets a certain number of free tickets and how you allocate them but there's some kind of resource allocation with which you reveal your preference to kind of use the econ term and so you can't really stumble into an interinterlect salon accidentally. You go there, you choose this title, you choose this time, you show up, there is video, there is your real name. So there are just these basic characteristics of the platform that bring with them the positive side effects of, well, if you paid 10, 20, 30 bucks to be there and you're sitting there for two hours with your real name and the host can see you, then you probably won't really be a troll. There's nothing in the system that incentivizes you. Uh, You would be immediately removed from the room. You would probably be banned from coming back again. So like nobody would upvote, like retweet you on the spot. Like you you win nothing. 
Whereas if you're an intelligent and pleasant participant, whatever your level of knowledge might be about the particular topic, and like the topics can range from, you know, cognitive science to history, engineering to business, medieval literature to, you know, futurism. We we really have everything and nobody knows everything. So there are always rooms where you are the dumbest person and that's the best thing, you know. You want to be in a room where, where you know, hopefully at least sometimes everybody's smarter than you. So there are just these incentive kind of, there's this incentives engineering or fine tuning that I really deeply believe in. And then we, we have a very simple code of conduct, deeply inspired by Quora's. So we really liked how, how Quora approached this. And we have five rules of gathering and four rules of hosting. So altogether nine basic rules about how we go about things beyond those everything goes we have hosts who do seven hour readings of a philosophy book we have one hour casual group therapy salons we have workshops we have reading events writing events we have people who paint people who learn how to make music we have a lot of standard salons where people just like sit around and talk about a particular topic which can as i said range from any discipline and level of you know, academic difficulty. Our hosts, as you, you know, you asked about our hosts, we are extremely wide and try to provide a very similar care resources to everybody. We have complete newcomers, uh, people, you know, who are just finishing college or didn't go to college or just like found us on the internet or they just moved to a new city and they know that there's an internet hub meetups in their city and they got involved which is, you know, it's our great joy to nurture people and see them flourish in the community. And then we have mega celebrities, you know, Steven Pinker just did an event, you know, James Clear is coming January, Tyler Cohen is doing another event. So, you know, we are very happy to attract intellectuals, artists, thinkers from really all walks of life, all levels of, you know, their development in the kind of in the public arena but also it's you know we're very culturally ideologically politically diverse and to me that's probably it's not the most important thing for our users they come for the vibes they come for the friends they come for this continuous experience that for is for many 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 people in our community and amongst our host that's their only like stable fixed secure thing in this chaotic world right now. And we see extremely deep relationships forming. A lot of people are getting married in interintellect to each other that they've met there. Kinder intellect. Yeah, we have kinder intellect where people can bring their baby to the salon. We have, you know, people who have met at an offline and they are writing books together now. We had people who moved continents because of interintellect, people quit their jobs because of us. So, you know, it's very humbling for me to follow these incredibly dramatic life changes. But it's also very important to me that, you know, in a, in a moment in our collective communication um, and how it's reflected in the media, there's nothing in the middle and I want to be in the middle. I want to be the place where people from all sides of the aisle, and I don't think it's two anymore, I think there are many, can come and kind of talk to each other or talk at least to the community and attendees one after the other. Well, and that's how we find out that we have way more in common than we have differences because so much of media, I think, highlights the differences between people. But then if you come around a common topic like learning music or a piece of art or a book or something, you find that, oh, yeah, you know, we're it, it just is like a shared experience that everybody can whether they are, you know, from the US, like right wing person or from, you know, France, like left wing person or someone from, you know, uh, Kenya or something, right? Like somebody has a completely different background, people can come together around these topics and kind of recognize the shared humanity that we all have. Absolutely. I think shared humanity is such a beautiful way to put it. Look, I don't, I don't see it as my job to change people's minds. Um, I think life is very complicated and a good host keeps things complicated. But I think every individual deserves to know what other people are really thinking in its full nuance. And I think through interintellect, you can find out 
in a way that really brings you together over other shared experiences. So that whether you're going through the classics in a reading group or you're learning about early Japanese art or you're learning about AI, there will be people who are not like you. And But, you know, when we're breaking bread, when we're eating together, when we're celebrating together, when we're having a salon together, you know, in this virtual living room, those things don't necessarily matter because we have other things to talk about where we are very similar. Our need for community, our need for living and being in the world and knowing that the world is big, that there is optionality, that there is hope to understand that, you know, you might be in a particular situation, but situations are relative and changeable, that other people also have it hard, but other people like you are also very helpful and that together we we are just stronger. I mean, we are all we have. <laughs> that's it. Like, we are all we have. That's that's the world. And this is what we have to deal with. And I think we can deal with it beautifully. And there's no reason uh, why not to try. That was such a great way of explaining that. Because, you know, sometimes people could look at inter-intellect and just say, oh, this is just a community of people looking to, like, learn together. But I think it's there's something much bigger to it than that. And I think you're saying there's nothing in the middle, you know, bringing all these people together. That's like the meta goal above all of, you know, yes, you're there to learn about a specific technology or art or books or something. Like, yes, you're there to learn, but the, like, you have created the space basically for people to connect that way. Yeah. I have a couple of tactical questions, so get ready. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. first one. I will have some technical answers. I will try. I will do my best. Yeah. So the first one is, you had this concept probably at some point after you were interacting with a lot of people, you had this idea and you can go into as much detail or as little detail as you want, but what was the process of going from the beginning to actually having the community of interintellect? Because I think for community-based, whether it's companies or groups, that sort of is like zero to one moment, that like that network effects momentum is so hard to do. And obviously, you know, you did it, you have a thriving community. So I'm curious you know, what did you do to kind of get to that point? Um, and how did you actually go about doing that? That's a really, really good question. I think I had two really deeply pivotal moments that enabled Interintellect to exist. One was in February or March 2019. And the other was, I think, November, December 2019. So 2019 for me was a formative, formative year in kind of unthinkable ways. So the first thing that I, I, I kind of let go of as a mental model was that I have to have a co-founder. I really came into startup land through reading about Sam Altman and YC, and I was desperate to get into YC. And I really, I was desperate to build a company that YC will like. And I was breaking my back to find a co-founder, to have a CTO, and then be the little non-technical female CEO in a skirt next to him, you know, and it was, it was a disaster. I was literally in like two abusive work marriages with two guys just trying to stay in it so we can apply. And I, I was going about it in the whole, the whole wrong way, but I felt like, oh, I have to, like, I have to make this sacrifice so that on the side I can do my own research and build this thing. Otherwise, nobody will take me seriously. I'm just this little philosopher from Eastern Europe. You know, I don't know anybody. And then there was this moment in 2018. I was so broke and so new immigrant, working some terrible job and making career mistakes and just being really down under um, in London. When I thought first that, okay, I have to be more public. Like I have to take this idea on the internet that I have and hear what people have to say about it. I had been doing a lot of research, but that was literally like me going to like, I don't know, London campuses and just interviewing thousands of university students one after the other about their internet use uh, because I couldn't find the information that I needed. And like, at first I went public and I was like, I'm Anagat and here are my thoughts and I'm really scared of you guys, but you know. Hi, <laughs> that was like how I went on, on Twitter. And out of that, I don't know what kind of cosmic freak, freakiness of things. The first like big account that follow, followed me was Sam Altman. And I was like, you don't even follow people. Like, how did you know you already changed my life? You know, we have nothing in common. You're like in a 
country in a city where I had never been. I don't know anything about it. But wow. And actually the first person that I had a meeting with when I first went to SF a year later was with Sam. And I took him uh, uh, Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, as a gift. Like, hey, thank you for changing my life. And he was feeling so uncomfortable. And we had nothing to talk about. That was an incredible meeting. And so by February 2019, I think I was weighing 40 kilograms. And I was in a horrible shape. And I had just you know, started my kind of public journey on Twitter and experimenting with you know, trying to talk to the internet. And then I, I decided that I have to be a solo founder. Whatever happens, come what may, I don't care. I know this is unorthodox and people will probably like laugh me out of rooms, but I just, I have to try it because otherwise I will die. Like I was feeling that I was on this like slide down and that's not cool. And literally the moment I decided this, everything, it, it, it was like, you know, when they, when they do like a time lapse of somebody like, taking LSD and like their brain opens and all these like things start swirling. Like that's how my entire life felt. And immediately I got invited to SF. I went there, I met everybody. I raised money. I interned like started in Dolores part kind of accidentally because I was like, Hey, I'm on a, I don't have a co-founder. I'm fully free. I do whatever the hell I want. Let's talk. And like a hundred people showed up. I was like, all right, I guess we have a community now. And so I was doing that, but on the side, because I'm like, you know, good, deep suffering Eastern European Jew. I was like, but this is too much fun. I have to suffer because work is suffering. And so I just, I need to build an app. And so I was busting my butt to like build an app on the side that I'm not kidding you, like nobody cared about. It was like, I would talk about it to people and they would fall asleep. Like I was curing insomnia internationally and everybody wanted interinterlax. And then by December, I was like, why am I trying to turn something into my livelihood and life's work? that literally nobody cares about when there is this other thing, which I consider some fluffy side project because it brings me joy. And somehow my mental model is that if, if it brings me joy, I'm sure it's not going to work out. And then I kind of like had to just jump out of that mental model and be like, no, actually this thing from which I derive so much pleasure and delight and life improvement is going to be my day job. And of course, in many ways, at that point, it stops being just this fountain of joy and becomes a ton of responsibility. And I mean, I literally sat down in that moment in my pajamas in my kitchen with my living room, and I have been sitting there ever since. Like, I'm not doing anything else ever. Today, I watched one half of a 30-minute TV show. Like, that's my free time. Or like, sometimes I do sports. But... I had to kind of like jump out of these loops to to get started. Anna, there's a uh, a guy who he's also pretty prominent on Twitter. I've had him on the other podcast, not on this podcast yet, named Paul Millard. He's done. He wrote the book uh, Pathless Path, and it's it's funny. I've been talking to him a lot. I read his book, consuming a lot of his content, and it's something that I think a lot of us we don't grow up with this idea that what you enjoy doing can also be work. Right. That like it's uh, you're allowed to enjoy your work. Right. It doesn't feel like work if you're not like struggling in some way. And he writes a lot about how it, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. So I've been kind of funny enough. You went through this a few years ago, it sounds like, to make this leap. I've been trying to work through that even myself, thinking like, oh, I enjoy podcasts. Why does this always have to be like just like a little side thing that has nothing to do with? It's something I can lean more into. I don't have to feel guilty that I'm doing a podcast and not, you know, doing some work at the, uh, instead of, of doing the podcast. So it's a leap. Yeah. I think when you're a millennial, it, it gets sometimes another kind of twist that is probably a, a really unique thing for our generation, which is that, you know, if you watch a documentary or read the, the autobiography or biography of a famous boomer. They will always talk about how, you know, their parents were, you know, lawyers or clerks. So there was something that's relatively monotonous as a job. And then the son, the daughter rebelled, you know, became a scholar, a rock star, whoever gets to write a, an autobiography or, or, or gets a biography written about them. And and that's pretty straightforward because they're like, oh, here is my father or my mother in a job that they hate. I want to go and shout on a stage and get paid a lot of money for it. 
And then it's kind of intuitive, like, okay, I love doing this. And now they are also paying me for it. And that's great. I'm the child of those rock stars. So I grew up with people who had turned their hobbies into their jobs, but they did not seem happy. <laughs> and they and I was definitely not happy about what they were doing or that world. And so to me, you know, my, my, my kind of youthful impression about the world was that I'm just a kind of person who doesn't enjoy things. I had never expected before entering Slack to really do something that would give me this level of fulfillment. And so it was a very kind of, I was 34, 35, the first time when I realized that, okay, that one thing that is Eastern European show business, which is a pretty dark thing to live through, that I didn't like, but there are a lot of other things that are entertaining and fun and that which I do like. And in some weird way, Interinteract is the combination of these sensibilities. It is show business. It's not education. People come to us, you know, instead of binging Netflix for the evening, you know, they phone in, they listen to, you know, somebody talk about Aristotle uh, all evening, bring a glass of wine, you know, their cat, their spouse, put their feet up. It's for fun. You're not getting a degree afterwards. This is not a networking event. This is not a dating event. There's no goal. It's an infinite game. The goal is that you can continue playing. So it is in the entertainment bracket from like an economics point of view. It's serious and it's for, you know, it's for a specific kind of entertainment seeker. I like to say that we compete with Netflix. We are trying to steal, you know, once a week their um, self-respecting customers. I'm curious how you went through this transformation or if it was even a transformation for you, but school does, at least in American schools, I can't speak for how other countries do their education system, but at least in American schools, there is a, um, there's something about it that hammers the joy of learning out of you in the way that we, that we learn. And I think, you know, a great, good example is me. And then I would say a lot of my sort of friends that I've met over the years as well, who read now as adults, went through a period where we read a lot as children, we hit a certain age, and at that point, reading became something you did for school. And then you don't read again, until unless it's assigned. You know, teacher assigns it, you have to read it, fine, you read the book. But you're not reading for pleasure, you're not reading for your self-learning, you're not reading for your you know, uh, curiosity, the way that you might have done when you were a child until you almost unlearn that behavior as an adult. And I got very lucky. I stumbled upon a couple of great books when I was 23. One is The Tiger. I'm forgetting who the author is, but it's just a basically story of this man-eating tiger in Russia and how uh, it was incredibly difficult to hunt this tiger. Like it's a nonfiction story. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm blanking on who the author is. And then another one was The Confederacy of Dunces, which is a great, hilarious book, which I didn't know a book can be that funny. And I read those books when I was 23. And all of a sudden, I was back into reading, really loved it. And it just sent me down this like, honestly, a lot of things that happened in my life after 23 were downstream of basically finding those two books and realizing that I love reading, which sounds so trivial. But I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, your community in some ways, it is attracting those kind of learners, people who don't treat learning as like something I stopped doing when I graduated from college. It's like, they're curious about the world. And they're trying to learn things, you know, continuously. Did you go through any kind of transformation like that? Or have you always been kind of intellectually curious and interested in having these kinds of discussions? I think what matters is what is your revolt? For me, the revolt was that I read. And I read way beyond what was permitted or advised for a girl to remain marriageable. I was like... You know, I grew up in an environment where there were a lot of books, but that was not the way to get ahead in life. And I remember just thinking, you know, everybody shut up. I'm going to consume the bookshelves. And I did. And then when I was done, I went to the library and did it there. And I just did this until I was, I don't know, 23. And I revolted. And I loved school because I had a kind of platonic ideal about what school is in my head, and it had absolutely was absolutely not met by anything presented to me by the real world. The fantasy was so strong that I just lived in it. And, and I think in many ways, interintellect is like a fantasy school. It's the Hogwarts. It's for people who like the school inside their heads, but the school doesn't exist in the world. 
or it exists but only for an extremely brief period of time when you're in I don't know you're doing your masters and there's a book club then for me the other revolt was what happened to me in my in my thoughts I had maybe like three revolts when I was in my tens or even earlier maybe like six plus then reading and accumulating knowledge was my revolt sitting down and teaching myself English you know and learning languages and and like reading actual like dictionaries and 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 encyclopedias on the floor <laughs> that was like my teens i was very cool then in my 20s the revolt was literally rock and roll like i went into the music business i stopped getting up during the day i only did that night i was managing rock bands and i was still reading and writing and i had a career as a journalist and a screenwriter but it was very like i really wanted to kind of live out dionysian in myself and and because I think I have a good sense for business, I kind of did it in a businessy way. But um, but I had a lot of fun. It was a very interesting discovery of mine um, that Visa Verasami, who's a good friend, Interintact host, and was you know always kind of the doula of Interintact as it came to be, that he also worked in music. And there was something extremely primal uh, when it comes to community that you learn when you're when you work in music and visa also learned everything that he knows about community in that environment when it's such a literal thing it's not a community like the community of people who like war and peace which is kind of this fluffy ethereal thing community around a band is an actual audience who like come out flesh and blood wait around you know in the cold and then go and and stand for hours listening to that band and then stick around until you know the early morning hours and and you you learn something extremely real about people and gathering people through music but in my in my early 30s you know i had emigrated and i was really you know setting myself up for a life where you know i would be this very meta level person passive intellectual writing for from bed you know writing my plays and then maybe having a day job on the side and then at some point, you know, being discovered through my writing or retiring into an academic job and just telling people about the world. I think my last revolt until now, the revolt of my 30s was definitely about leadership and stepping up to, you know, taking a more active, direct role in the world and having the audacity to think that I can make a change and I can be useful beyond words, going from word cell <laughs> to, to shape rotator, probably. Um, and it has been a, a great unlocking experience for me. And I think there's something about revolting interintellect. Revolting simply in this context means that you do something for yourself as an individual. This is not self-care. This is not necessarily self-realization. I think it's a cyclical thing and we do it repeatedly. We reinvent ourselves. And with every step, we're trying to get closer to who we really are. Um, this is often in negation of our environment or expectations. And there is something about re rediscovery, re-self-discovery um, when it comes to, you know, why people use my product, why people come to my community, why people host on my platform. It's in negation of the one-sided intellectual pursuit where you're kind of exiled into this adult existence where you can read, you know, tons and tons of substacks all day, uh, or you can write and then read the comments. But where is the conversation? Where is the exhilaration of dialogue? One of the, my favorite sentences in the Graeber Wengrow book was how the human brain can't read. I mean, other than like in exceptional situations and exceptional people, a normal human brain can't really hold a thought for more than seven seconds unless they are in conversation. Oh, wow. oh, in wow. conversation, you can hold That's... a thought for days, hours, weeks. So you almost need it to be a multiplayer game than being a single player game. Yeah. I love it. Yes. Thinking as a multiplayer <laughs> game. I think that's a, a yeah. beautiful conclusion. That's so uh, interesting. I never knew that stat, actually, the seven seconds thing, but it makes complete sense. And it's why you can delve deeper into topics in a conversation than if you're just in a room by yourself. You know, you, don't, you often miss things that are highlighted in the first five minutes of a conversation. And you're also creating this place for people to play. And um, 
play together, not in this world of I can just sit in my dark room with my laptop, read Substacks, you know, listen to podcasts or whatever. And podcasts are, are good. I mean, I think there's a place for them, but they're not a multiplayer game in the same way. It's not a conversation. There's no back and forth. So I, I think you're truly building like almost a new kind of, um, it's not a new kind of media, but it is, it's like a new place for people to explore these ideas. Like almost, as you said, like the middle, but even the middle of various types of human interactions, like not, it's not an article, it's not a podcast, not a blog, not a, uh, in-person event. Although have you done in-person events? I mean, besides this, like spontaneous ones, but is in-person a big, you know, kind of component of interintellect or is it the goal is to stay mostly virtual for accessibility? Both. So uh, most of our events are public and online and, you know, anybody from anywhere in the world who has internet connection can join, but we do have a very active community and the community organizes their own local gatherings in myriads of places from Bangalore to Berlin, from London to New York, from Singapore to, to SF. Um, and I myself hosted a bunch and people love to travel around the world, meet their interintellect friends and run events. These are sometimes just like lunches or, you know, picnics. Sometimes they have a theme, a topic. The ones we are doing in New York City and soon in Austin are a little bit more serious and they sometimes even involve special guests. London has workshops, you know, SF sometimes just has like a cookout. It's lovely. IRLs are members only just for the safety and comfort of everybody. And we definitely want to be like this worldwide campus where, you know, everybody, you can't really be airdropped into any city in the world where there are no interintellects are kind of the arc instant friends and, and that is such parts. a cool idea yeah that's such a cool idea that anywhere you go in the world there could be a interintellect uh, group so if someone wants to join or get involved they've listened to this episode they say oh this sounds like a really great idea what is the next thing that they should go do is that is there a like what's kind of the process for someone joining Sure. So we see multiple different user journeys. Um, the more, the most prominent ones um, are either just you know seeing that one of your friends or your friend's friend is hosting an interinterlac salon. You click on the link interinterlac.com/salon/something/something salon title, um, and you buy a ticket and you receive the ticket via an email and then you go. Um, and then people usually fall in love and buy a membership they can get like monthly quarterly yearly or become a super supporter and then they you know get access to the community offline events a bunch of freebies a lot of discounts it's really i think it's really worth it but some people you know start a new newsletter they start a new podcast and they're looking for a place where they can have interactive paid creator enabler conversation space and then they happen up on interintellect and they create a host account right away we really deeply encourage hosts to go to other hosts' events, to learn, to compare, to get inspired, to make friends. You know, people go very easily to somebody's event whom they know from other events. So we give free codes, free tickets to hosts as well. So they are these are the two typical ways through which people arrive. And, and then there are people who really just want to be in an online community. They might not even come to events much. They just hang out in our Discord or they hang out in the Discord and also in their local interintellect branch. It really depends on the person's, you know, life situation. You know, a mother of three will have a very different use of interintellect than, you know, a 20-year-old student. And that's fine. Uh, we try to create a space that accommodates as many people as possible. That's fantastic. And then the cost to joining, I know you said there's free codes as well, but the cost to joining is like an annual subscription, right? We are currently giving a 30% discount. So come to interintag.com slash community now. But the full price is $134.99 a year, $14.99 a month. So it's a really affordable thing. And we do give, you know, student fellowships for special, you know, if somebody has special um, requirements. There's also a micro grant um, that we're offering now. So we are just about to announce the first batch. This is basically like a stipend for doing research and traveling. Average size is like $1,000. So there are a lot of opportunities also for like financial aid. If even our 
you know, I think quite modest prices might be too high for somebody. And you can make money if you're host. You will make money with it. <laughs> so that's, oh, so that's great. So for hosts, they can even, um, you know, kind of monetize their knowledge in some ways or help use it to support their work. Almost all our hosts monetize their knowledge. That's, uh, I think, 90% of our hosts are doing the paid version. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very affordable. Speaking as somebody in the West, I mean, I could imagine if there are people listening who might be in, you know, uh, India or Africa or some other, uh, some countries in South America as well, you know, perhaps it, it may feel expensive for them. But that said, you know, it's a way to access this global community that is very difficult to get in your home country, actually, no matter which country you're, you live in, even if you live in the United States or the UK or, you know, Japan or somewhere, it's, this is a way to access people around the world who are similarly curious to you. And, you know, it, it feels like a force multiplier <laughs> for your own personal knowledge. So, yeah. I think so. And we, we see people, I mean, one of our uh, India-based, very young, very smart Interintech members and hosts just got scholarship from a New York City university and is now there. You know, being an Interintact host featured prominently in his application for the scholarship and played an important role in his getting it. Wow. Yeah. And then now when he's in New York, he has a built-in community as well of people who are people he may have already met virtually and now can interact with physically as well. It's like the global campus idea that you mentioned. Absolutely. And, and he did not feel alone in New York. Um, he did come to um, a picnic in Central Park that I attended as well. It was just fantastic to meet them. A lot of the India, other India-based InterInTech members are currently traveling. They are, you know, telling our, their stories on our Discord. Where is Vajresh? Where is Tanya? They are all over and you can kind of track them in the location city channels on our Discord. Like somebody is like pinging Budapest or Berlin or Barcelona, meeting the local people who is in New Mexico. I'm going to be in New Mexico. I'm going to, I don't know, I'm in Mexico City. Oh, okay, okay. And then, yeah, you get the photos of people meeting. It's lovely. Wow. Yeah. And I will, I will put links to all of these things in the, in the show notes. So even the community joining link, the website, um, your Substack actually, which is quite interesting. And then my favorite blog post that you've written which I encourage everyone to go read about Despacito. Just very, very interesting way to break down that video. So I won't give people the spoiler spoiler alerts, but she somehow managed to take a video about what she calls it, butts, and do a think piece on it. And it's fascinating. Why would billions and billions and billions of people watch something where there are so many videos about butts? Obviously, Despacito's video is about faith and community and love and homeland. But you have to watch it and read my piece to, to find out. I did that yesterday as prep for this uh, episode. I, I read the piece. Well, I, watched, I read the piece first. I had watched the video in the past, but then I rewatched it after reading the piece. And you see all the symbolism, like, you know, the thing with the ocean. It's all there. Yeah. It's all there. So clever. And one thing that I really regretted after is like there is one movement that I think is really important that I didn't put into the article. Maybe I should write this one. So basically there's this kind of overcut of I think the woman enters the nightclub in this golden dress through the golden curtains. So it's obviously like, you know, Venus comes at night and you know the, the first part of the video is about the men's world and the men's family and friends. And then the second part is the woman's domain. And so this is like, you get a flash forward of her entering the nightclub, intercut still with the children playing during the day. And then, then there's the, the Fonsi doing like a thrust with his hip. And it's so like, obviously, like they are telling you the future, right? Like she has just arrived, but the future that she will have his children already is told to you before they even start first dancing. I have goosebumps just talking about it because it's so, this is like, you know, what early 20th century theorists of art history like Abi Warburg would call a pathos formula where there are movements and symbols that are so deeply kind of entrenched in our minds that, you know, it can be a split second 
three little split second frames on one after the other. And in your mind, you already know that you're not going to watch two people hooking up. You're watching the beginning of a family, which is just mind blowing that the human brain gets this while the whole, you know, lyrical environment of the song is about two people like making love on the beach. So like there's nothing in the actual lyrics that tells you. But the video is about the, the nuptials and the fact that you understand and people want to watch this. Like people have a very limited, you know, amount of patience for frivolous things because life is difficult and you really only pay attention to things that are matters of life and death in life. And when you don't understand why people really love something, you always look for what is it about this thing that is about life and death. And so I saw how many people watched this video and this was the most highly viewed video on YouTube. And I sat down in 2019 and I wanted to find out. And then I understood that this is like life conquering death. And that's what people want to see. That's why people watch Star Wars. That's why people watch E.T. And that's why people watch Despacito. Wow. Yeah, so definitely everybody needs to read this blog post because it blew my mind yesterday. And I was just prepping. I was just reading through your blog, your Substack, different things to just prepare. And this was one of the things on the list. And this just blew my mind. So yes, everyone should read this. It's going to be in the show notes. Please click on it and read it and tell Anna what you think on, uh, on Twitter. I'll put a link to your Twitter as well. When you have your wedding soon, I hope that you guys will dance to Despacito after the ceremony at some point and relive the whole vibe. That is actually a great idea. So that, that should actually happen. Well, Anna, thank you so much for, for joining. I know you're not going to say, I'm really glad you had me on because that's boring. <laughs> but I appreciate you joining. If anybody has a better idea what people should say at the end of podcasts, please find me on Twitter and let me know. Maybe we should do a salon about that. Just brainstorm, group brainstorm. <laughs> Non-boring. Uh... Non-boring podcast beginnings and ends. Let's yeah, do that'll be a fun one. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you, Anna. Follow Anna on Twitter, join Interintellect, and let us know what you think uh, about the episode.